0: Salut, bienvenue. Hello there and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 8. Belle Epoque Paris and the Eiffel Tower. I'm thinking that maybe some of the pictures you have in your head of Paris probably date from the Belle Epoque, even if you don't realise it. If, when you think of Paris, you think of the Eiffel Tower, or perhaps of some of those lovely Impressionist paintings, street scenes from the 19th century, the Opera House, the Dancers at the Moulin Rouge... All of these things dated originally from the era known as the Belle Époque, the era which, for many people, defines Paris. So, for this episode then, some definitions. What was the Belle Époque, and when was it, and why was it Belle? A little history, in other words. And some sites to visit that link to that era. Places like the Opéra, the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais, the Galerie Lafayette, and, of course, of course, the Eiffel Tower. So, heading back into history to start with, we talked in the last episode about that awful period which culminated in the Semaine Sanglante, the bloody week, the brutal put-down of the Paris Commune by the authorities. But, as it turned out, that was the last serious bloodshed in the city of Paris, right up until 1914, the outbreak of World War I. And so people look back fondly on that period, partly because it was a period largely of peacetime, and also because it was an era when lots of new and exciting things were happening, and when Paris really did seem to be at the very centre of the world. And those are some of the reasons why it became known as La Belle Epoque. It was a time for artists and writers and musicians to gather in Paris, the Impressionist painters, for example, who broke the mould with their new techniques and their choice of subjects, deciding quite frequently to paint street scenes of their beloved capital city pictures which documented the carefree gaiety of life in Paris. For example, Renoir's painting, Les Grands Boulevards, which shows that new invention, the flaneur, the person walking about to no particular purpose, wandering down one of the fairly newly built wide boulevards in the city. Or a painting like Camille Pissarro's The Seine and the Louvre, which shows lovely Paris on a wintry day. You can see the Pont des Arts, one of the bridges across the Seine, you can see the Louvre, and lots of sky and water, all in that lovely Parisian watery grey light of winter. Another artist a little later on who defined Paris of the same era would be Toulouse-Lautrec with his posters using the new techniques of silhouettes, capturing that gay abandon of nightclubs and dancing girls and actors and music. It's the era when composers like Debussy and Ravel were walking the streets of Paris, composing yes but also mingling with the other painters and artists and performers in places like Montmartre. It was a shocking period in some ways culminating perhaps in 1913 so just before the end of the era really when much consternation was caused by wait for it the performance of a ballet. Problem arose with the arrival of the Ballet Russe, the Russian ballet company run by Diaghilev in Paris, when they performed Stravinsky's Rite of Spring at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. The music was so unexpected, the choreography so daring, that people were shocked, and rioting actually broke out in the theatre. There was a great emphasis, too, on fun and entertainment for ordinary people. Some of the grandest Parisian cafes date from this era. Cabaret and Music Hall was very popular. It's estimated that in 1900 there were about 40 different venues where you could go to enjoy such entertainment. One of the best-known ones being the Folies Bergère, which dates from 1872 and had its heyday in the 1890s, somewhere where you could see operettas and hear popular songs and see the very popular dancing girls. Other establishments did similar things, but there were also displays of gymnastics, there were circus routines, a real feeling that really anything went and all of this carried out in a rowdy atmosphere, exuberant dancing, lots of audience participation, clapping, calling out, singing along. The audience wandered about as well, buying drinks, smoking, chattering, thinking nothing of calling out to their favourite dancers now and then. In short, quite a raucous atmosphere. And that was why, when the future Edward the Seventh, then the Prince of Wales, took to coming on visits, going to places like the Moulin Rouge, people were amazed – It was more than just fun and entertainment, though. There was a big emphasis on technology as well. All sorts of exciting new things were beginning to become possible. And so there was a real feeling that technology from now on would enhance people's lives and open up an exciting new century. Epitomised by the Eiffel Tower, which was actually built in 1889, a vast, shiny, showy engineering project designed precisely to show the world what the French could do. Only in Paris, they thought, belonged the tallest tower in the world. It was also the era when the metro was first opened up, the very first line opening on the 19th of July 1900, Porte de Vincennes to Porte de Mayo, making travel round the city easier for everybody, but also showcasing the new emphasis on style. The architect Hector Guimard was employed, for example, to design the entrances to many of the new metro stations, and his Art Nouveau decorations heralded a new era when what things looked like and the style of things was important. About 80 of these can still be seen more or less unchanged today. And you can get other glimpses of the new style of architecture if you look at the Gare d'Orsay, now of course the Musée d'Orsay, or the Dome of the Grand Palais. These eye-catching new structures made possible by the advance of technology, the use of steel structures to prop up something like the Dome of the Grand Palais. New techniques making it possible to design and make the wrought-iron railings, which are such a feature of, for example, the metro station entrances. It was the era of the expansion of the railways as well, hence the need to build the Gare d'Orsay. And this opened up travel for Parisians who could now go and spend days or weekends in Deauville, or travel a bit further to Biarritz and the Riviera. And all of this world of exciting new possibilities found its grand culmination in the World Fair of 1900, which took place in Paris, and to which it's thought that some 50 million visitors came. Many Parisians, many French people, but also many from abroad, so putting Paris on the map. It was a celebration of all things new and wondrous. One of the most popular sites to visit was the Palais d'Electricité, set up at the Trocadéro, overlooking the Seine. But there were lots of other exhibition halls. The whole thing was opened by the French president, one Émile leloubert we made an extravagant opening speech, claiming that the virtues of the new century would be, quote, justice and human kindness. The guide Ashet, published at the time of the opening of the exhibition, also got very overexcited, writing the following, quote, It is the exhibition of the great century which opens a new era in the history of humanity. It does all sound very uplifting and grand, doesn't it? And then you remember that only 14 years later, World War I broke out, and new technology was used then for new and terrible purposes. But at the time, the atmosphere was just one of excitement and looking forward. Here, for example, is Sue Rowe in her book In Montmartre, writing about another development that was just coming into its own, which was shown off big time at the World Fair, and that was the development of cinema. News companies like Gomont were there, showing off their news reels, ejecting them onto a gigantic screen, and allowing people to hear some of the very earliest examples of synchronised sound. One audience member was amazed and wrote, Every member of the audience had a listening tube hung on the back of a seat in front of them, with a pair of little knobs that you placed in your ears. At the other end of the listening tube, a phonograph played a text synchronised with pictures. Cinema companies like Gaumont and Paté Lumière were there showing films, and as Sue Rowe notes in her book In Montmartre, Quote, taking the opportunity to show off their most spectacular technical advances. For the duration of the exhibition, Paris really was the centre of the world. Other countries came to display their goods and inventions and new ideas. Here's an extract from an article by a traveller historian, Gert Mark, quoted in a book called City Lit Paris. All, by the way, of all sorts of extracts about all sorts of aspects of Paris. I highly recommend. Anyway, Mr Mark wrote... The 50 million visitors traipsed from one miracle to the next. There were X-ray machines with which you could look right through men and women. There was an automobile exhibition. There was equipment for wireless telegraphy. Forty countries took part. California had dug an imitation gold mine. Egypt came with a temple and an antique tomb. Great Britain showed off all the colonies of its empire. Germany had a steam locomotive that would travel at 120 kph. France exhibited a model of Clément Arda's motorised flying machine, a gigantic bat with a 30 metre wingspan. Humans, after all, were destined to leave the earth one day. That does capture the excitement, doesn't it? The idea that anything could be possible. The whole of Paris was exciting and the place to be. There are descriptions of evening entertainments in places like the Café des Ambassadeurs, one of Paris's really grandest cafes, where the chanteurs, the singers, would appear in long, elegant dresses and stylish, long black gloves. And people dressed up to come and see. Women in heavy silk dresses with nipped-in waists, bustles, hats decorated with feathers and flowers. Just excess and a delight in style at every turn. But I really mustn't give the impression that it was all glamour for everybody, because that certainly wasn't the case. A study done in 1882, for example, decided that 73% of Parisians lived in poverty. They were not the ones enjoying all this new excitement. And you get pictures of that in novels by Zola, which showed the drudgery of life for the working classes. A painting like Edouard Degas' In a Café, that was its actual title. Its subtitle was Absinthe, the drink that many people were downing far too much of, and the painting shows the social havoc caused by its overconsumption. If you know it, two lonely characters sitting in a café, not relating to each other at all, I don't think we even know if they know each other, both gloomily contemplating, we're not quite sure what, but sitting in down-at-hill surroundings, said to be a café in Pigalle, just at the foot of Montmartre. So a real reminder that not everybody was leading a glamorous and exciting life. We think of the can-can venues as being bawdy, but really just fun whereas historians tell us that actually they in many cases were exploitative the high kicking women who people flocked to see often wore no underwear many were probably prostitutes as well exploited by the better off men who came to see them the authorities did worry about this they sent the police along to keep an eye on public decency but the facts remain that many women had no other options and that, for example, in the 1860s, there were thought to be some 30,000 prostitutes in Paris. The préfet de Police, at the time, said, quote, They are everywhere, in the cafe Concerts, the theatres and the dance halls. You encounter them in public establishments, railway stations, even train carriages. There are some on all the promenade, in front of most of the cafés. They circulate in great numbers, on the most beautiful boulevard, to the great disgust of the public. Definitely an aspect that we shouldn't overlook but I think today when you go to Paris in search of the Belle Epoque there are certain places that you're going to want to visit to catch the flavour and I'm going to run through them now with a little bit of detail on each one. So they would be the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais, the Galerie Lafayette, the Opera and the Eiffel Tower. Starting then with the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais which were both built for the 1900 exhibition you can tell that if you look at the stone and ironwork facades, the Belle Époque architecture at its very best, and particularly on the palais the 45-metre glass cupola, which tops the whole thing, remains one of the things to look out for if you're on a river trip or gazing over from the other side of the Seine, and which today is one of the city's premier venues for special exhibitions. You can see all sorts there, be it cars or tintin, music festivals, fashion shows, All sorts of other things are put on there. It tends to be a very booked-up place. If you want to see any of those things, you're going to have to book well in advance. The Petit Palais is slightly different. It's not actually that small, despite its name. Also somewhere where you can see Belle Epoque touches, such as the wrought-iron staircase. It's run as an art gallery today. Its other title is the Musée des Beaux-Arts de la Ville de Paris, so the Paris City Fine Arts Museum. Both of those buildings are definitely worth a look if you want to soak up some Belle Epoque atmosphere. Another place that's easy to go to, because actually it's a shop, but where there is some stunning Belle Epoque style on display, is the Galerie Lafayette, Paris's best-known department store, just across the road from the back of the Opéra, an establishment which opened in 1895, so right in the middle of the Belle Epoque, and was originally just a small haberdashers evidently run by a couple of people with an eye for marketing, because gradually it acquired a reputation as being a magasin de nouveauté, a novelty shop. Don't think that's got the sort of tacky, end of the pier plastic connotations that the word novelty has in English. It's more that it was a shop where you could go to buy the very latest in really anything, fashion, food, you name it. So definitely caught the zeitgeist, and was so popular that by 1912 they managed to reopen with their Wonderful new Art Nouveau interior, central staircase based on the one at the Opera, a huge forty three meter high dome inside which dominates the whole building its jewelled colours, its stained glass windows. You definitely find yourself, when you first go in, I think wondering is this an art gallery or is it really a shop? It seemed to specialise in everything. Early on, it had ninety six departments, no less, and also extra add ons, a smoking room, a tea room a reading room. And so for all these reasons, it became one of the places to visit. And I think it's fair to say that it still is. Whether you're going to buy anything or just gawp at the amazing displays, can you imagine the sort of thing they do at, let's say, Christmas or Easter? You could spend hours just in the food hall. And if you don't want to spend any money at all, you can still go in and go right up to the rooftop where you'll get some of the best views of Paris including a close-up view of the Opéra, which is bang next door. And that brings me nicely to said Opéra, or the Opéra Garnier, as it's really called, Garnier being the architect responsible for its design. It was actually begun in 1860, and things went slow, of course, during the siege of the city by the Germans, but it was absolutely a symbol of Paris getting back to being Paris very soon after that because it opened in 1875, so only a few years after the siege, and for that reason it really was seen as a major event, a sign that Paris was regaining confidence. And a very grand opening was arranged, attended by crowned heads of states from other countries, and by the mayor of London, who arrived fully robed in, wait for it, a gilded coach. Rupert Christensen, in his book City of Light, is very good on exactly how glamorous the newly opening opera house was, and on its significance in the history of the city, writing of, quote, gilded and mirrored salons, shimmering candelabra and marbled colonnades, ceilings plastered with mosaics and frescoes, classical statuary and flaming gas torch all enhancing a superb central stairwell that turned the ascending and descending audience into a spiralling spectacle and he goes on to explain how, quote, Patriotic hearts were exhorted to swell, and even the satirical weekly Lucifle responded to the call. Be proud of being French when looking at our opera. Foreigners who come to visit this marvel will see that despite all our misfortunes, Paris is, and always will be, without rival. Am I allowed to say that is so French, and actually so Parisian? Certainly worth a visit today. You could, of course, go to an opera, or you could go and look round by yourself, or join a guided tour, and you'll see the work of, as for instance, eighteen different sculptors, all of whom were commissioned to do statues of musicians and statues representing operas, etc., etc. I noticed in the guidebook they had a page which had pictures of—wait for it—the twenty-four different sorts of marble which were used in building it. Inside, the auditorium, of course, is somewhere you're going to want to see, red and gold, all built using the very newest techniques of the 1860s and 70s, propped up by a 25-metre-high iron structure, supporting the domed ceiling, which is actually quite something. It was painted by the artist Marc Chagall, showing 14 scenes from different operas. So if you look carefully, you can see everything from Mozart's The Magic Flute to Wagner's Tristan und Isolde, Swan Lake is there, so's Carmen, Romeo and Juliet. And the ceiling tops off this glorious spectacle of the auditorium. It's red velvet, it's gold leaf balconies, it's massive chandelier which weighs seven tons, a bronze and crystal number with 340 lights. Well known these days because of the role it played in the Phantom of the Opera when it crashed from the ceiling to the floor. This was a scene in the novel, Gaston Leroux wrote, called Phantom of the Opera, which in turn was based on an actual event, a day, or an evening rather, in 1896, when one of the counterweights to the chandelier fell, totally unexpectedly, landed on an audience member, sitting in seat 13 in the fourth balcony, and, sadly, killed her. That seat has remained unsold to this day, Outside the auditorium, I think the Grand Foyer is almost as famous, its magnificent marble staircase. And all in all, anywhere inside that glorious building, you're very aware that it's been the place for ballet and opera since its opening in 1875. Although, in fact, more recently there has been a second opera, the Opéra Bastille, opened in 1989 as part of the bicentenary celebrations for the French Revolution much more modern, opened in Place de la Bastille, aiming therefore perhaps to have a slightly more opera of the people sort of feel, although in fact I have to say that when I went there, it did feel quite posh. Anyway, I think on into the future, the Paris opera that most people will think of will remain the Opéra Garnier, for all its glamour and its spectacle, and the history behind it, the significance of Paris's rebirth as a glamorous city in the 1870s. And then the final monument I'd like to come to that very much says Belle Epoque is the Eiffel Tower, built in 1889 for another exhibition, the Exposition Universelle, in this case, two years in the building, 300 workers toiling away day after day to build what was going to be the tallest building in the world, and in fact remained that until as late as 1934, when it was finally overtaken by the Chrysler Building in New York. Originally, it was going to be temporary, just up for the fair, really, but, as we'll hear in a minute, it proved so useful and popular that it was never taken down. That doesn't mean to say it was popular when it first went up. There was huge opposition to it, even before it was built, when some of the intelligentsia, particularly authors and artists, saw what was planned and began to sniff that it would surely be too mercantile. It would look like a grimy factory chimney. They didn't like the, odious shadow of this hollowed out column of sheet metal. So strong were their feelings that they organised a public petition, just as planning was getting under way in 1887, and here's how they explained why they didn't think much of it. Quote, the Eiffel Tower, which even money-grubbing America, we can be certain, would not want, is the dishonour of Paris. Everyone knows that, everyone says it, and everyone is profoundly upset and we are only the weak echo of the universal public opinion, which is rightly alarmed. One has only to imagine a vertiginously ridiculous tower dominating Paris like a gigantic black factory chimney, crushing by its barbarous massiveness Notre-Dame, the Sainte-Chapelle, the Saint-Jacques Tower, the Louvre, the Dome of the Invalides, and the Arc de Triomphe. Gustave Eiffel, who had been commissioned to design it, was having none of this, and he struck back, explaining why it was, he thought, it would be a good thing for Paris, and comparing it, perhaps a trifle immodestly, with some of the other greatest monuments in the world. So he wrote, Is it because of their artistic value that the pyramids have so powerfully struck men's imaginations? The tower will be the highest edifice which men have ever built, so why should what is admirable in Egypt become hideous and ridiculous in Paris? He won the argument, of course, and built It Actually Finally Was. Guy de Maupassant, the short story writer, who had been one of the group of intellectuals who organised the petition, decided he would have the last word. He would go there, he said, and he would eat there in the restaurant, because, quote, it is the only place in Paris where I don't have to see it. He's in quite a minority, though, because even in the year it was built, two million visitors came, including the Prince of Wales, Various kings from Africa, one buffalo bill. Everyone was there. Its popularity grew more as some of the artists of the day began to include it in their paintings, and people slowly began to realise that it symbolised Paris and France in a way that somehow no other monument quite managed. The 20th century author, Roland Barthes, writing in 1979, tried to explain that somehow it united everyone in Paris. In Paris, he wrote... The tower is there, connecting me above the city to each of my friends that I know are seeing it. with it, we all comprise a shifting figure of which it is the steady centre. The original plan had been that it would stand for twenty years and then it would be demolished. but in the twenty years after it was built, not only was it popular as a place to go and visit or a place to gaze at from various points across the city, but it also became useful. An observatory was installed upon the top where scientific experiments were carried out. It's still there today, by the way. It was used for radio broadcasts. And it turned into quite a money spinner. So in the end, nobody thought it was a good idea to take it down again. One interesting thing about when it was built, the architect, Gustave Eiffel, had his own private apartment installed right at the top of the tower. It was part of the contract he negotiated. He would design it, but he wanted to be able to live up there. Many people were intrigued by this, pleaded with him to show them round, and offered him lots of money so they could rent it out, even just for one night. But he wasn't keen, he kept refusing, although he would occasionally invite a guest of his own choosing. He did, for example, host Thomas Edison, no less, the lighthouse designer. But you had to be Gustave Eiffel-approved to gain an invitation. Today we're a bit luckier because the little room is open to the public. It's right up on the top floor, so if you get that far you could look round and you'll see the space in which he worked, and a wax model of Gustav himself. The tower has played its own part in significant moments of history in the city. During World War I, for example, it was used as a radio tower to help jam German communications, said to have played a pivotal role in the Battle of the Marne in 1914, and acting generally as a communications hub for listening in on German transmissions. In World War Two, when Paris was occupied by the Germans, some quick-thinking Parisians took the trouble, just before they arrived, to sever the cables in the lift. The idea, I think, was that if Hitler was going to climb the steps of the most famous tower in the city, he'd have to do it physically using his own legs, because a lift would not be provided. German soldiers were indeed sent up the tower to hoist a swastika over the top, a very large flag that was going to sway over the city and underline the fact that it was now under occupation but in fact it only lasted a few hours and blew away. I think it was replaced by a smaller one but that must have been a satisfying moment I think for the Parisians. The tower was closed during the whole of the occupation and the lift was repaired so that it could reopen in 1946. Hitler himself was very aware of the power, the symbolic power of the tower and as the Germans were retreating in 1944 he ordered his general there General Dietrich von Kurlitz, to destroy the Eiffel Tower before he left the city. But the German general, for whatever reason, disobeyed, is known to have said that he thought Hitler was just mad to suggest such a thing. And so we have him to thank that the Eiffel Tower is still there. A few stats for you. If you climb up the steps to the top, you'll have to climb up 1,665 of them. But there are also five lifts in the building. And there are three levels, so you don't actually have to go right to the top. It's thought that about 250 million people have visited the Eiffel Tower since its opening in 1889. That's about 25,000 visitors every day, a fact of which I think you will be aware if you decide to go yourself. One of the guidebooks I read helpfully told us that the weight of paint needed to paint the whole thing would be the equivalent in weight of 10 elephants. But that, that notwithstanding, it has been repainted eighteen times to date. That's about once every seven years. So important is it deemed to keep La Dame de Fer, or the Iron Lady, looking spick and span. They do change the colours occasionally. It was a red-brown colour originally. Today it's more of a bronze hue. It's said that round the world there are about thirty replicas of the Eiffel Tower, and I'm proud to say that one of the very first was put up in Britain because right back in 1889, when the World Fair was being held, one Sir John Bickerstaff, who was the mayor of Blackpool, came to visit and was so impressed that he decided Blackpool must have its own version, hence the tower built on the seafront in the town of Blackpool. There are others in Las Vegas, in Pakistan. The Tokyo Tower in Japan is a bright red-painted replica. I think it might be true to say that lots of cities trying to get a little Parisian glamour for themselves, have hit on the idea of building their own version. It's also been used over the years for various madcap escapades. People have tried flying under the arches of the tower in various aircraft. One, as early as 1926, the pilot, one Léon Collet, I'm sad to say, was killed in the attempt. Lots of people have had the idea of having climbing races up to the top. One was organised as early as 1905 by a local newspaper and won by one Monsieur Forestier, who took 3 minutes and 12 seconds to get up to the second level. These days, every March, there is a race known as La Verticale de la Tour Eiffel, in which people compete to run up to the top in the fastest time. Other people have tried it on bikes, even on motorbikes, people have parachuted off the top. More recently, the French rap duo, known as PNL, recorded a music video right at the top and the video wrapped up 126 million views in its first year. You have to think, some of that at least, would be down to the ever-popular image of Paris's Eiffel Tower. For most of us, with no desire to race up it, or indeed down it, it just remains the most popular landmark in the whole of this city full of wonderful landmarks, something you keep catching glimpses of from unexpected corners of Paris. I remember, for example, rounding a corner in the garden of Balzac's house in the 16th district to come, most unexpectedly, across a view of it I hadn't seen before. And most particularly, of course, it is Paris by night, isn't it? It's 20,000 light bulbs switched on every evening, and once an hour, on the hour, there's a five-minute special sparkle show, as they call it, which I like to think anybody who's in Paris at the time and has got the tower in their sights, stops whatever they're doing just to enjoy that lovely spectacle. The last one, by the way, is at 1am. It's no coincidence that the Eiffel Tower plays a starring role every New Year's Eve, every Bastille Day, and I can't wait to see what they're going to do to make it one of the centrepieces of the Paris Olympics. I can't claim I climb up it every time I go to Paris, but I certainly look at it every time I go to Paris. And one of my favourite moments is if I'm coming in on easy jet to Charles de Gaulle to one particular runway, and I'm sitting on the right-hand side of the plane, I know that if I glance down at just the right moment, there it will be in all its glory. The Eiffel Tower reminding me that once again I'm back in lovely Paris. So, leaving that behind for now and thinking ahead to the next episode, I'm going to call that Impressionist Paris and use it to deal with another feature of the city that really says Paris to everybody all over the world. And that's the work of that group of artists, including Renoir and Monet and Manet and Degas and lots more, most of whom were centred in Paris, and many of whom included it in fresh and delightful ways in so many of their paintings. I'll be offering you a little history, a few details about some of the best-known painters and their most famous works, and ideas for three places in the city that you can go to visit if you particularly want to know more about the work of the city's Impressionists. But for this week, that's it. We're leaving the Belle Époque behind. And so I would just like to thank you for listening, and grand merci, and to wish you goodbye. Au revoir, and hope very much to have your company again next week, la semaine prochaine. Au revoir.